Salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So it's good to be in Sydney. I just arrived uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel Hayraju. I'm coming from the US. Uh, I visited uh, Melbourne for about six days. Now I'm here for a few days, alhamdulillah. Uh, and I've been talking about uh, on this tour. Uh, issues of modernism, liberalism, feminism, ideologies that have been weaponized against Islam and have been weaponized against Muslims for the past uh, 250 to 300 years, beginning with the colonial period uh, up until now. And um, these are the issues that uh, I'm qualified to speak on, I think. Um, I was asked today to speak about the issue of heroes or great examples, role models that we can really uh, look to for guidance on how to uh, behave and act and how we can really approach the challenges that we face. And one of the, you know, all of the MBA are of course examples for us, uh, but one prophet that I think is very relevant for our time is Prophet Hud and what makes him very relevant for our time is his opponent the people that he was sent to uh, Ad and the people of Ad uh, are interesting and unique in the sense that they were uh, described as being very powerful and very strong physically strong uh, in terms of being very intelligent and resourceful and they also had a great amount of wealth so this is very similar to the kind of enemies of Islam that we see today who have the physical power they have um, a lot of intelligence or seeming intelligence and they have a lot of resources the people of Ad were so physically powerful that some of them uh, and some of the descriptions were described as, you know, one of them being able to pull out a palm tree by himself, you know, and if you know palm trees, they are, their roots are very deep. So to be able to rip out a palm tree with your bare hands, that, that shows you the kind of strength that they had. And of course, they had a great amount of intelligence because they built very impressive buildings out of rocks, out of stone. Um, this is something that um, also distinguished them. And Allah says that in the Quran that this kind of power made them extremely arrogant. Um, they were extremely arrogant and they thought that there is no one better than them, no one stronger than them. And they forgot that Allah is, of course, stronger than them. So they became arrogant. And this is exactly what we see in our time today. People are uh, arrogant because of their wealth, because of their power, because of their intelligence. And we see many people in this day and age who have a kind of God complex. They are offended by the idea of submitting to God. They're offended by the idea that they have to obey someone other than their own whims and desires. And this is what we see from whether it's athletes, whether it's celebrities, whether it's politicians, whether it's some of these billionaires, tech billionaires or whatever. They have grown extremely arrogant. And this is a very ugly trait. 
you have been given so much uh, blessings from Allah and you don't recognize the source of the blessings. Rather, you attribute all of your success, all of your wealth, all of your power, all of your intelligence to yourself. When we look at the Quran, Allah is describing some individuals, uh, some role models who achieved great power and great wealth, but they were humble and they were submitted to Allah and they turned their face to Allah. You know, who can give me some examples of such people? Who they were very powerful, but they're also very humble in the Quran. Does anyone know? Sulaiman, Aysam. Dhul-Qarnayn, great example. Anyone else? The Prophet, mm. There's more in terms of dunya power. There is Anbiya who are Dawood, Okay, that's the other example. So they, these are examples of Anbiya or individuals who may not have been Anbiya given great power, great intelligence, great resources and wealth, but they were grateful to Allah. But Ad, these people of Ad, were the opposite. So what's relevant for our time is that the tendency is that when you face a very powerful opponent, if you don't have confidence then you are put in a position where you might compromise your principles. And this is what we see, unfortunately, with uh, some Muslims today. There is a powerful enemy who seems to be more resourceful, more wealthy, more intelligent, physically stronger. And in the face of that, they compromise. It's easy to be principled and strong and... Uh, stand up and have a backbone against a weak opponent. But if your opponent is very strong and has resources, then in that situation, if you're not fully confident in what you can offer, you're not fully grounded in your principles, then you will tend to compromise. That's why the example of Hud is so apt and so relevant for us, because he didn't go against a weak opponent. He went against one of the strongest people of all time, in the people of Ad. And he, his example is very profound in the way that he faced this opponent. He handled his opponent in a very specific way and we're going to try to learn from that, inshallah. So, one of the things that we see from Hud, uh, Hud is that he told his people, why are you worshipping stones? Why are you worshipping stones? This makes no sense instead of Allah, instead of the Creator. This is the message of all of the Anbiya. Why are you turning your face to the creation instead of the Creator? And this is very interesting that some a people that can be so strong and powerful and intelligent and capable, they would still make this stupid mistake. They would still make a stupid mistake of worshipping stones and something that's lifeless. And you might think that this is something from the past. And of course, intelligent people today, the scientists and the researchers and the people who are at the Ivy League schools, of course, they, they're too smart for this, for worshiping stones, worshiping rocks. But you'd be surprised at the level of uh, superstitious beliefs 
and even this kind of paganism that exists amongst the upper classes and the amount of superstitions that they have. Um, you know, when it comes to athletes, this is well known. Like some of the biggest, most popular, famous athletes were highly, highly superstitious. Like they will think that, okay, I have a big game, uh, a big maybe uh, playoff game or championship game, any game that they play, I have to listen to this song before the, before the match. Or I have a spe special socks that I have to wear. I have special gloves I have to wear. I have to, I have to turn the light on and off five times before I leave the locker room. They have these kinds of superstitions and beliefs. So you might say, okay, well, the athletes are not the most <laughs> smart people. But this is something that this kind of superstition, you can find it in others as well. And there's actually some statistics on this. So they did a study, the percentage of self-identified atheists who believe in horoscopes. So do you know what horoscope means? They think that, oh, I was born on a certain month. Therefore, because of the stars or the constellations uh, in the sky, I can predict what will happen to me today. You know, and they read them daily like a horoscope and they print them in the newspaper. This is a kind of shirk. Uh, and unfortunately, I think some Muslims also fall into this. Uh, they think that they, you know, it'll say, okay, if you are a, um, what's an example, Pisces? Some, some of, like you're a fish, that's your symbol. Uh, or you're a cancer, it's like a crab. That means today you're going to have an amazing opportunity. Or you're going to, you know, meet an old friend. And they really believe this. They really believe this kind of nonsense. And they don't think that, you know, well, there's only 12 signs. So are there only 12 possibilities for what could happen in a day? In a day? It's really quite stupid. But the self-identified atheists, people who, who think, especially in this day and age, they reject God. They say, yeah, there's no such thing as God. Obviously, there's no such thing as God. We believe in science. But, you know, I'm going to open the newspaper and read the horoscope. That's 12% to 35%. And the variation is based on country. So in some countries, it might be as low as 12% of the self-identified atheists. Like countries like, I don't know, China is an atheistic country, for example, or different countries in the West. And then 35% at the highest. 9% to 23% believe in objects with mystical powers. So this is very interesting. Have you heard of this? these gems? You've heard, heard of them? Healing crystals, yeah. That's, I was so shocked to hear about such a thing that people, they believe in it. Like, oh, there's a healing crystal, I wear it. It depends on my personality and it makes me feel good. Or I don't know what else they do. they put like in water to drink it or something? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's common, okay. Yeah, so then some Muslims might not even know that, okay, this is shirk. You, you shouldn't be using this or buying this or believing this. And there was one example of a Muslim. And I was shocked. This is a Muslim who is, you know, memorizing the Quran, going for salah, and believes in, in this. And didn't realize that this is actually shirk. This is something that you have to avoid. You can't participate in this. But that's, that's a Muslim. But amongst the atheists, Self-identified atheists, 9% to 23%. Okay, so we're talking about countries like China, Brazil, Japan, US, UK, and Denmark. This was a study. 
um, done on these beliefs of atheists. So we can't think that, oh, you know, believe they're literally believing in stones and the power of stones. So how is this very different from uh, Ad or any of the other mushrikeen of the past? But, you know, it's actually, you might again think that, oh, well, this must be the really uneducated, the really stupid atheists and the smarter atheists know better. Well, I you know, went to Harvard University for my college degree. And you would not believe the amount of stupidity and stupid beliefs that you find at a place like Harvard. Uh, and it, the biggest example you could say is that every semester before the final exams, they had a very specific ritual. And they got the ritual from paganism, uh, basically. But right the week weekend before the exam, at night, on a very particular night, they would have something called primal scream. Primal scream. You know what this is? <laughs> You're shaking your head like you know what it is. Yeah, it's extremely stupid, but the Harvard undergraduate would participate in this, where they would go into Harvard Yard. It's like an open space with a lot of grass. And they would take off their clothes, and they would run in that... In that uh, you know, area, the courtyard, and just scream, just loudly scream like crazy people. And you'd have newspapers that would come and take pictures like tabloids and other tourists like would come to Boston specifically for this uh, ritual. But you can see like these are people that are supposed to be very intelligent, the best and the brightest that, uh, you know, America has to offer. And they engage in this kind of paganistic ritual um, and it's supposed to have good luck for your exams. It's supposed to have, you know, this is luck for your exams. So this is another kind of of shirk. And this is exactly what Hud uh, the prophet, said to the um, said to Ad. He called them muftarun. Muftarun meaning you're just making something up. You're creating something of yourself and you're worshiping it. So don't you realize that? Don't you see? How can you worship something that you made up yourself? Um, so this is the kind of blindness that some people have to this day who consider themselves very, you know, the best of the best in terms of intelligence. They can, whether they're atheist or not, um, they, this pattern is universal amongst human beings that they fall into shirk and they are tricked by shaitan and their own nafs and their own ego. So what was the reaction of the people of Ad? Well, they called Hud foolish. They called him a liar. Um, they mocked him. And this is exactly what we see from atheists. They say that, no, you Muslims are foolish. You are uh, a liar. You're ignorant. They attack Islam in exactly the same way. When in reality, it's their ideologies that are man-made. So the ideologies specifically that are attacking Islam, ideologies like liberalism and democracy and feminism, these are all man-made ideologies. Um, just like the ideologies of the past, uh, whether it is things like stone worship, ideologies of Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism or Zoroastrianism, all of these different religions, ideologies, they're man-made or they're corruptions of maybe a uh, monotheistic religion that 
was based on revelation from Allah that was corrupted over time, over generations. And that's what they follow and that's what they uh, worship. We are in exactly the same situation today with these man-made ideologies. Except now, instead of these ideologies being taught in the temples or the synagogues or the places of shirk, they're being taught in the universities, they're being taught in the, or propagated in the media establishment, in the political establishment, in the halls of power. It's the same thing. So what does Hud say? What is his response? And Hud says, I call Allah to witness and witness yourselves that I am free from whatever you associate with Allah other than him. So he makes bara. He does bara, which means completely disassociate. I am not part of you. I disassociate completely from you. And this is very important for us as Muslims. We see today many who will try to incorporate these man-made ideologies with Islam. They'll say, oh, well, we have Islamic uh, democracy. We have Islamic uh, liberalism. We have Islamic feminism. You can be a Muslim feminist. You can, before, you know, maybe if you go back 40 or 50 years, when communism was the big ideology, they would have Muslim communists. We are Muslims who are following Karl Marx. And, oh, maybe Karl Marx, you know, he was secretly Muslim. <laughs> we have, you know, he has these great ideas. So this is the opposite of the example of Hud Hud makes a complete break. He says, I disassociate completely. But do we have that policy? Do we have that approach to these ideologies and say, no, we're not going to mix the truth with falsehood. We're not going to bend the knee. Why, why should we pollute our Iman? Why should we pollute our way of life? Our way of life, if we mix and add anything to it, man-made ideologies, is going to get worse. It's going to become corrupt. It's going to be less pure. We have what Deen al-Khalis, it's pure. And that's what ikhlas is, to worship Allah without any partner, without mixing other ideas into it. That is what ikhlas, or one of the main meanings of ikhlas. So that is one big point from Hud that he makes complete um, bara, disassociation. And then he makes a very amazing statement. He challenges the disbelievers. He say, plot, he challenged them, just plot, make a plot against me and do not give me any rest. This is the challenge that he makes against the people of Ad. So imagine, he first says, I disassociate from you completely, and I challenge you, do your best, come and do your best against me, all together. So these are one of the most powerful people of history, and he has this kind of bravery, shaja'a, that he goes and he issues this challenge. And the ulama, when they comment on the example of Hud, they say that uh, when we read the stories of the other Anbiya, they're associated with different miracles. Mu'ajizat, and we see you know, Musa, السلام, his uh, miracles, Isa, السلام, Ibrahim, السلام, and so forth. But with Hud, 
There's not something like that explicitly mentioned that's associated with Hud And some of the scholars said that actually what was so miraculous, the marjiza of Hud, was that he challenged these people by himself. And he challenged them and the fact that they could not harm him and they could not stop him despite being amongst the most powerful people in history, that was the miracle of Hud So this shows you the significance of this particular prophet. And then he also, another characteristic, so he talked about he made Barat, he challenges them, he has a very confrontational, in-your-face mentality, and then he has tawakkul. He says, إِنِّي تَوَكَّلْتُ عَلَى اللَّهِ رَبِّي وَرَبِّكُمْ So this is a very interesting statement that also the uh, tafsir mentions, the tafsir discuss. He said he has tawakkul on Allah. He relies upon Allah. So this is always important when you're facing uh, these types of challenges. But he also kind of insults them or mocks them when he emphasizes Rabbi wa Rabbikum. He's telling them he's my Lord and he's your Lord. No matter how much you reject it, he's also your Lord. And this is one of the characteristics of uh, some of the Anbiya and also the Sahaba. This kind of jab against them. And another example of this is the Sahabi Bilal, radiallahu anhu. Uh, Bilal, as we know, was tortured by his master. Uh, Bilal was a slave and he was being tortured severely by his master. And we know what uh, Bilal, radiallahu anhu, would say when he was tortured. Anyone know? Ahadun Ahad. So the name of Allah. And later, um, when he was asked about this, some of the others, uh, Sahaba, asked him, why did you always say Ahadun Ahad? Why specifically that name of Allah? Um, and then Bilal's answer was amazing. He said that, um, you know, I would say other names of Allah, uh, remember Allah in those times of torture, but I found out or I realized that when I said Ahadun Ahad, that name of Allah made them more angry. That name of Allah made them even more mad. So imagine, subhanAllah, the bravery and this attitude that not only is he being tortured, he wants to make them even more mad. He wants to even poke them and jab them and annoy them to that extent. Even though it's going to harm him too, they're going to be more mad, they're going to torture him more severely. But he would clearly get pleasure out of that. So th this is, subhanAllah, the, the mindset that has to be appreciated. Because oftentimes we are told by some that, oh, you know, you don't want to turn people away from Islam. If you, uh, you have to be just very merciful and compassionate at all times. And, you know, consider, yes, we do da'wah with hikmah. We call to Islam with hikmah. Uh, and Ma'idat al-Hasana with the best way, the best form. But the but hikmah, wisdom, and doing things in the, you know, with Ma'idat al-Hasana, uh, uh, that's not necessarily gentleness. That's not necessarily kindness. Sometimes you have to be bold. Sometimes you have to be aggressive. Sometimes, not all the time, there's a balance. That's what wisdom is, putting the right thing in the right place at the right time, for the right reason. That's what hikmah is. 
But sometimes, like Bilal عنه, or Hud السلام, uh, it's justified. It's, it has a meaning and significance to do something that will make the opposition, the enemies of Allah, the enemies of Allah and His Messenger وسلم, to make them angry. So this is, this is a lost gem from the Anbiya and from the Sahaba. And there are many other examples that we can talk about. So this is you know, also the essence of masculinity as well. You know, what we have this big question about what is masculinity and oh, the youth are confused about masculinity and they're looking online and seeing Andrew Tate or they're seeing these kinds of social media influencers and they don't know what real masculinity is. These are the examples that we should teach our children of the MBA, of the Sahaba. This is real masculinity. This is real bravery. This is real standing up and having a backbone having hikmah, having wisdom, and calling to Allah with no compromise, saying clearly, this is the truth and this is falsehood, and we are disassociating from the falsehood. So what could be more masculine than that? What could be more a better example of manhood than that? So, And this is really the substance of masculinity. The substance of masculinity is standing for the truth, standing for la ilaha illallah, denouncing shirk in all its forms, whether it's worshipping stones, whether it's worshipping, you know, these gems, health gems or whatever, or horoscopes, or these man-made ideologies that are being promoted in our day and age. Liberalism, feminism, atheism, um, communism, all of these types of ideologies, we have to be very strong and say that we disassociate completely. We, don't, we have no need for these ideologies. We're not going to bend the knee and we're not going to be weak. We're going to be strong and actually uh, disassociate from them. So when we do that, we are following the sunnah of Hud salam, especially in this day and age, because we're in a position of weakness. We're in a position of being weak. Uh, we're being dominated physically. We're being in, some Muslims are being tortured in the world today, whether we look at the Uyghurs in China or we look at what, the, um, uh, Myan, what Myanmar is doing to or Burma is doing to the Rohingya or what the Hindutva are doing to the Indian Muslims. We see many examples of uh, this subjugation and domination of Muslims. But that doesn't mean that the Muslim, when he's in a weaker position, that he becomes defeated. No, in a weaker position, that is an opportunity for the Muslim to shine even brighter and even stronger. And this is what we see in the example of many of the MBA. So that's, you know, that's the main example that I want to share with you. Um, that was the first 30 minutes of our hour. So in the rest of the 30 minutes, I just want to open it up for Q&A. If we can start on the topic, maybe. First, and then if all the questions on the topic are exhausted, then we can talk about other issues that you're interested in. The, the problem with youth taking kuffar as role models is do they know how to distinguish the good from the bad? And sometimes youth, like this idea of, oh, take the good and leave the bad, you have to know what the good is in the first place. So that's really... Um, why, for example, with Andrew Tate, for example, he became Muslim, he's very popular, has a lot of, was at one point the most Googled man on earth. Should we tell our children, oh, you know, take him as a, as a role model? 
I say no, don't have such a role model. Why? Because a, especially a child, you don't know what is the good that he is actually bringing versus what is the bad. It's just all mixed together. So he should not be taken as a role model for those who are not really educated or Islamically informed. But for people who are, you know, leaders and older, they're Islamically informed, they have studied. If they see certain tactics, for example, or certain practices that can have a benefit for Muslims, then it's, I think it's fine to learn from that and try to implement it for the benefit of the Ummah. Would I say, oh, this, these are, this is a role model just because you take something from him? Not necessarily. So the question is, um, when you're when I debate people or someone is debating uh, non-Muslims, is the goal really to break their ego and are they going to be more um, open to the truth of Islam at that point? Uh, I My target when I debate um, a Christian or an atheist or a liberal or a feminist is not necessarily to convince that person, uh, but it's there's two main purposes. The first purpose is to present arguments and ideas to counteract the bottle and to show how weak these ideologies are against Islam. Um, that's, that's number one. But even if a person who's watching a debate, they might not follow the argument or it might be boring or it might be, you know, they can't really understand what's being said or what's being argued. But they still see that there's a Muslim who's willing to stand up and argue with, you know, against that bottle. And they don't see much of that. So an example, I did a debate recently on the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Aisha radiallahu anha. And uh, so I presented some arguments uh, to counteract the Christian. The Christian wanted to say that, no, this is immoral. Uh, this marriage is immoral, it's wrong. And so I'm defending the Prophet ﷺ, I'm defending the practice. And uh, what a lot of Muslims watching that, and even Christians watching that, they might not follow all the arguments that I'm presenting. But they've never necessarily seen a Muslim in that position of debate um, to defend that position. And that by itself has a big impact psychologically. And the, from the reaction, you can tell, like a lot of Muslims were very happy. They, were, they enjoyed it. Just the idea of you know, having that as a debate topic and a Muslim going against a Christian or a non-Muslim. And then a lot of the Christians were enraged. <laughs> and atheists, they were extremely angry. Because what they want to do, like what the uh, kuffar and the enemies of Islam want to do, is they want to bully us. They want to bully us and intimidate and so they'll specifically point out something in Islam that they think, oh, it's very politically incorrect to defend it. It's embarrassing to defend it. And they want to just bully Muslims. And they love to see Muslims be apologetic and to squirm and say, well, actually, there's a context to this and this. Yeah, there's a place to talk about context and, and all that. But you can tell that they it's just apology. It's just trying to minimize the Islamic belief as opposed to say, yeah, this is what it is. What do you want? <laughs> You know, that kind of attitude. So when a Muslim does show that kind of attitude, then it really gets them angry and upset. I mean, you can compare it to the example of Bilal uh, and Ahad and Ahad, 
Like, it's just, they get extremely enraged by it. And some people, their hearts are opened, I think. It depends on the debate topic. But I've been approached by people who said, oh, you know, I watched your debate and I became Muslim. And I'm shocked by that, <laughs> actually, uh, because, um, you know, it's a debate. It's supposed to be, alhamdulillah, I mean, it's a good thing, but I don't, my main goal isn't that, oh, there's going to be an atheist and he's going to watch me debate, you know, the marriage of the Prophet, and then he becomes Muslim. Like, eventually, hopefully, like, this is just one idea that, or one obstacle that an atheist or a non-Muslim might have to becoming Muslim. Like, if you look online, a lot of them have a problem with, like, um, a, a, uh, the marriage of the Prophet, to Aisha, or they might have a problem with jihad, they might have a problem with, um, you know, women's rights in Islam. These are, like, barriers, and then you kind of have to knock each one down. So that's the way I look at it, trying to knock down these obstacles towards people accepting Islam. In debate, uh, so to repeat the question, if anyone didn't hear it, um, what has been the biggest challenge debating a layperson or debating an academic? I think it depends on the kind of layperson. There are lay people, laymen, who are very good at arguing. So there was one person that I debated a couple of times. Uh, his name online is uh, Destiny. Uh, yeah, so he's a funny person. But he's just a very Khabith, you know, liberal, uh, disgusting. Yeah, Dayuth. So he, um, he's a layperson. He's not an academic. But he's good at, uh, he talks very fast. I talk very slow. He talks very fast. And he knows how to like throw stupid arguments to like, yeah. And he talks in a way that makes it seem like he knows what he's talking about, even if, when he's saying complete nonsense. So that he's a lay person and he's, he's a difficult person to debate. Um, other people who are lay, like a lay person that could be very easy because they're just not, debate is like a very particular skill. Um, but then some academics are easy to do, surprisingly easy to debate because, and this is like goes back to one of the statements of Imam al-Shafi that's very famous, um, where the Imam said, I debated an alim and I won, I debated a jahil and I lost. You know, how can you lose a debate to a jahil when you're Imam al-Shafi? But the idea is that the, um, the jahil, the ignorant person, doesn't know logic doesn't know like how to form an argument and how to respond so just it becomes very it's like trying to like what's easier like punching wood or to break it or punching sand like the sand is just going to shift and move and you can't really make you can't really break it in the same way that you can break wood so yeah it things vary but it's not associated with whether it's a lay person or academic the biggest factor is, does the person have a lot of debate experience? That's a good question. How do we inspire confidence in Muslims, Muslim youth, I guess, in college? Um, I think that what's very impactful is going through the seerah um, and teaching, especially our boys. I think boys are the ones who really need to have this quality and the girls just follow the lead of the boys. So if you focus on the boys, then that will solve the problem, inshallah. But with boys specifically, they need to have 
a very good understanding of the seerah and specifically the battles, specifically the ghazawat and the fighting and all of the details of fighting and war. And this history is not really taught very much um, in certain places because there's political pressure and, oh, you're going to, you know, this leads to extremism, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think there's a reason why um, a lot of the government programs or even it goes back to colonial times. They don't want Muslims to know about the seerah and that aspect of the seerah because they know that will make Muslims very strong and that will be a source of inspiration. So what's happening is that our boys are taking, you know, our, their examples of bravery from like from Marvel movies, from, you know, uh, sports and, and some of these Khabith uh, type of athletes. Um, that's where their role models are coming from. And that's there's no substance to that. that there's no substance to that. But if you go back to the seerah and you learn about, okay, this is, how the Prophet ﷺ strategized, and this was, you know, what happened in this battle, that battle, those details. Boys love that, especially at a young age. And they all, like, it's going to work their imagination because there's no, like, movie about it. They have to, like, envision it in their head. And especially at a young age, this, their identity is very strongly formed by this. I, my experiences from my own children. I have five boys, alhamdulillah, and they have listened to the seerah uh, from different shuyukh uh, narrating it like old um, lessons and durus from shuyukh that they will they have listened to multiple times and the fine details of these battles and that was surprising to me i didn't know that they would just take such like an attachment and I, well i may, it makes sense like you see a lot of kids that they get very into comic books and uh, superheroes and marvel and Okay, well, if you don't give them that, if you don't give children that, then they'll attach themselves to the alternative. So if you give them sirah, that's what's going to really be, especially the battles. So that instills in children, I think, this kind of attitude of we have to stick together as an ummah. Like the whole concept of al-wala wal-bara becomes very ingrained. The concept of, you know, the ummah has to stick together, fight for the ummah, stand for the truth, stand against the enemy, be uh, savvy, be savvy and be uh, even the concept of kind of strategy, strategizing or even deception in war. Like these are very good values uh, for men to have. And if we teach our children from a young age, and not be apologetic about our own history. Like you can be, you can be watching these very violent movies involving all kinds of bloodshed and killing. Oh, no problem. But if you uh, learn about jihad and the battles of our history, then oh, that means you're an extremist. Why? That's a clear double standard. So that's my recommendation. What specifically is being pushed on schools? The uh, alphabet agenda. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, uh, there has been no pushback? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not aware of exactly what is going on in the U.S. I mean, in Australia, but in the U.S., definitely we have this frustration, or I, I personally have this frustration because for years I was bringing up this issue about, look, this is not going to be... Because the whole, 
the whole strategy, the alphabet strategy, you can call it, is that it's gradual. It's gradualism. And it's like, you know, just boiling the frog in the pot. You gradually increase the temperature until you've cooked it. So now when they have that strategy, you have to be very clear cut at the beginning before they gain all of this cultural power, cultural relevance. Uh, so unfortunately, a lot of the Muslim communities in the U.S., they didn't or most of them did not react and they kind of had this attitude of, okay, this is what the Kufar are doing, what's not relevant to us. Uh, let them do whatever they want. And this is contrary to what we know of Qawm Lut. Um, Qawm Lut, they weren't going to let people to reject their lifestyle, to reject their values. No, everyone has to accept, and if you don't accept, we're going to kick you out. So that's, if we truly understood the story of Lut and his people, we have realized that, okay, now it's just they're trying to say, oh, whatever two men do in the privacy of their be own bedroom, that's fine. It's not an issue for Muslims. But eventually, they're going to be knocking on our doors and they're going to force us. So that's why I think that if any Muslim community is not woken up by now, then subhanAllah, I don't know what to say. But what yeah, they're introducing it in a public school. So the bigger question is what alternative to this educational system have we set up? And is it truly an alternative? Like, um, I don't know about here, but in the U.S. I'm very dissatisfied with the quote-unquote Islamic schools. Uh, I don't see the Islamic schools as truly being an Islamic alternative. Um, they just take the standard non-muslim curriculum and they just put some islamic window dressing like or islamic garnish on it uh so that's is that really alternative no uh and those that non-muslim curriculum has plenty of it's not the alphabet stuff but it has problematic ideas within it as well that are contrary to islam and you've just brought it in it's like a trojan horse you've brought that in and you're teaching it to the muslim youth so for me personally and uh, my family, we, we homeschool and we set the curriculum like, okay, it's not just going to be the non-Muslim curriculum. Let's ask the question, okay, does my child really need, you know, five years of U.S. history, for, for example? Uh, no. And we have, alhamdulillah, some, the flexibility in the U.S. to say, to control our children's education. We can say, no, we don't want U.S. history. We're going to teach sirah. Um, or no, we're not going to teach like civics, um, you know, for two, three years, we're going to teach uh, Arabic, for example. Uh, so that's, I think the bigger issue is pedagogy. What is our al true alternative to this educational system? Just freaking out at the last minute, basically, oh, there's alphabet stuff in our schools. Like, were you not looking at what they're teaching like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. When I was in school, they were teaching all kinds of uh, fawahish and batil and in the schools. And our parents just said, go, yeah, no, go become a doctor. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of room for Muslims to exercise uh, institutional power. I think um, the whole thing with the alphabet people is that it's not, it wasn't a very big group. Uh, it's arguably smaller than the Muslim community is. 
Um, but they created institutional power through strategy and through um, the willingness to fight a legal battle with the government. Um, that kind of oppositional attitude, um, if Muslims can harness that, will go a long way to protect Muslims and to actually give Muslims uh, the ability to live according to Islamic, you know, many of the obligatory aspects of Islam within the Western world. One big example is South Africa. South African Muslims, they have a not all of them, but they have a contingent that has a very oppositional attitude towards the government, and they fight it in in a legal way, and they go to the court against the government. Um, and this is something that has benefited them a great deal because the government has to worry about okay, what are Muslims going to do uh, to fight us in court and legally? So this is, but the whole point of this talk when we're talking about who Islam is that you have to inculcate that kind of mentality because if you try to do that in a community that of, of basically simps, <laughs> then the simps will say, no, 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 we have to like, why are you trying to go against the government? Okay, it's, it's legal. This is, we're just fighting for our rights and we're strategizing, we're trying to do, we're trying to advance our interests as a community. Say, no, 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 we're living in a democracy, we're living in a secular society, we have to leave our religious beliefs private, in the masjid only, or in our homes, when we engage in the public sphere, we, we're just citizens. Well, look, brother, the other interest groups that are going to battle every day for their interests, they don't leave their values at, at home, or at temple, they bring their values to the battle, like their, the whole point of their advocacy and their strategizing is on the basis of their values and their uh, there are special interests. Muslims are the only ones who have to be secular when we go in the public domain and we advocate for our beliefs. This is a very defeatist mentality. So if we can do that and we can fight back, I think then Muslims will be able to live and even thrive uh, for decades, inshallah. If we don't do that, then I think the walls are going to be closing in faster and faster and faster. And some of these uh, European countries, they've banned any kind of homeschooling. They've even banned uh, parents from teaching religion to their children. So look at what Sweden is doing, where if a Muslim parent teaches uh, his child that, um, you know, zina is wrong or alphabet people are wrong, LGBT is wrong, the social services will take the children. Um, and in Germany, you have to send your kids to public school and the school system has like a religion curriculum where they will teach multiple religions for the sake of tolerance and you can't opt out. You can't opt your children out. So in these countries, how is Islam going to survive? Like how is, how is any kind of meaningful Islam going to survive? I think in those countries, then it's a lost cause. Like Muslims shouldn't be living in those countries because the, the iman of their children is in jeopardy. But what's stopping other countries from following that model? Very little. All of these other secular countries in the West are moving towards that. So what are we doing in advance? Like, are we thinking five years in advance, 10 years in advance? What's going to happen to Australia? What's going to happen in the U.S.? What's going to happen in the U.K.? We have to have that kind of strategizing. But if you don't have the oppositional mindset, then you're not going to strategize. You just go with the flow. That's a disaster. Then you can't complain in five years. Oh, you know, what are we going to do now? It's too little, too late. That was the talk. <laughs> Who is my role model? 
of the MBF for this specific aspect is who Daniel because what I like about who Daniel is that he was himself against this one of the strongest people, and um, I mean you see that with other MBF, but just the odds were against him in every way, but that showed the strength of his iman and his tawakkul, and that's what I try to uh, live up to and, and uh, exemplify in, in my own life and dawah. Yeah, yeah, underdog we can say for me, but <laughs> at a young age, hikmah just comes with experience. It comes with experience and it comes with um, sincerity. When you, ha when you are a sincere person, then Allah gives you wisdom because you have attached your heart to Allah and you just want to please Allah. And then that wisdom comes because of that. I can't give you more practical advice than that because there's no book that is about wisdom. I, I mean, that you can in incorporate just immediately like that. But maybe the Sheikh has some advice. Oh yeah, the, comparing the levels of degeneracy in America versus the U.S. The, 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 the crazy thing is that because of the internet, it's just all blended together. Uh, you're not going to see, you're going to see the same stuff everywhere, unfortunately. But yeah, if you go to the U.S., you're not going to notice a big difference from Australia. I haven't like, like coming here, I didn't think, wow, such a much wholesome more wholesome place australia is and i also didn't say oh wow this is a much more degenerate place i didn't have that reaction so leave you meaning oh um so either go against the compassionate imams or just do hijra there's no like other option <laughs> they are how are they controlling no it's very easy uh, easy in one sense to start your own institutions and uh, like, for example, in South Africa, they have a lawyers association, Muslim lawyers association. And the Muslim lawyers, they have, you know, the right mentality, the right understanding of Islam. Then they collaborate with an imams association, an imams association with that specifically was formed as a response to the compassionate imams. Because there's a lot of compassionate imams in South Africa, actually. And that and those compassionate imams work directly with the government. So Wifaqul Ulama was created as a response and opposition. And they started, you know, just a few years ago and it's from the gra like grassroots. But it was just let's communicate, let's coordinate, we can take certain measures, let's work with these lawyers, these legal professionals. They can they accomplished a lot, mashallah, in just a short amount of time. It doesn't require People think, oh, institutional power, it takes like generations to develop that. No, you can do it very uh, easily in one sense. Yeah, it takes a lot of work, but it's not this impossible goal. And also, you'd be surprised how weak the compassionate imams are. Like, they're just calling them out is a big, it's like a very, it's very bad for them. And you can do that. You don't need to have an institution to be able to do that. Mm, I didn't understand the question. No, you have to... So my position, I won't elaborate because that's pretty big difference in topic, but um, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in Australia, whether it's in any other country, uh, Muslims should always do Amr bin Ma'ruf wa nahi anil munkar. And that's necessary to preserve the deen. 
Um, if you stop enjoining good and forbidding evil, that re results in corruption in the religion. So we should always speak the truth, uh, no matter what. This is, you know, the deen of Islam. And, you know, if some people don't like it, that's not our problem.